This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, May 6, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Voting is great, so it should be mandatory. So goes one of the claims of those who would compel their fellow Americans to go to the polls. Cato's Walter Olson says not so fast. There are a lot of problems with that plan, not the least of which is that if you have a right to vote, you have a corresponding right not to do so. <laughs> right before we started recording, I said that the, the term voter disenfranchisement has uh, or is set to expand to include uh, perhaps minor inconveniences uh, attributed to voting. Um, and you said it's it's gone farther than that. I have seen it used to mean voting in an election and then being on the losing side. But the fact is, we no longer have as stable a definition of disenfranchisement, which used to mean that the franchise was denied to you rather than that you had to you know, go farther to a polling place or that the hours were not as long as you would find convenient for your job or, or the many other things that now count as disenfranchisement. So what about mandatory universal enfranchisement of voters? This is an idea that comes back every so often. I remember we used to talk about it long ago, the Australian system, it was sometimes called because Australia is the best known country that really has that as a policy. You you have to vote and there are fines if you don't and so forth. But it comes and goes and is now back being talked about in part because a consortium of the Harvard Kennedy School and the Brookings Institution convened a blue ribbon panel of people who liked the idea to conclude that, yes, it was a good idea and we should go on liking it or they should go on liking it. And two of the principals of that effort, E.J. Dion, uh, who's with Brookings, and Miles Rappaport, who's with the Kennedy School, are now out with a book to that effect. Yeah. Mandatory voting kind of has the same flavor of policy proposal as national service. Or mandatory national service. It does. There are the same arguments about, oh, this is a civic duty. Look at all the things you get from society. You should have to pay back. But there are also arguments about, you know, there will be a more egalitarian public experience if everyone is doing the same thing on the same day or in the same way. And people will somehow or other feel that they are more equal if they have all engaged in this together. And of course, just beyond that, there is the feeling that very, very often is associated with calls for mandatory voting, which is that people believe that if everyone had to come out and vote, that their side would benefit in elections. Funny about that. And, well, and it's also interesting in we look at 2020, for example, we had the two highest vote totals for two candidates ever. We had tremendous turnout. Turnout soared, and one of the curiosities of the polite establishment debate about voting is that there isn't more of a sense of, oh, well done, we must have been doing something right to get turnout so high. Instead, there is a sense, and I think there, this is an idea worth pursuing, that sometimes high turnout isn't a sign that everything is going well. Sometimes high turnout is a sign that people are worried and upset more than usual about <laughs> what, what might happen if the other side got control of government. Yeah, everything's going fine is not something that would necessarily spur one to go out and vote. 
Exactly. And so you have this large literature, not always on this issue, but this large literature saying that we should feel very bad as a country about fairly low turnout rates, and we should feel especially bad if we are in a state with a low turnout rate. And again, I would say if we're going to be doctors diagnosing this, it could be many things. It could be that people are terribly discouraged and feel that nothing is going to improve, but it also could be they're not so discontented and figure that their discontents with with government not pressing enough to at least given the, the choice of candidates available. And that ties in with a lot of the questions about mandatory voting, which is why are we supposed to assume that the problem is with the voters or something relating to their trooping to the polls when it could be that the candidates they're being presented with aren't as exciting or inspiring or relatable or call it what you will. And it's interesting that state legislatures or uh, state laws, when they deal with who's allowed to get on the ballot, many states make it very difficult. If you're not part of the sort of duopoly of Democrats and Republicans, in many cases, you have to devote an, an outsized amount of your uh, campaign spending to just appearing on a ballot. Anyone who has ever supported a third-party candidate tends to know all about that. And these things are, I would argue, related, which is that the insiders of both parties tend to get annoyed at the idea of, of competition, of having to compete for voters, at having to let people on the ballot that seem to them like spoiler or protest candidates because it seems so unlikely they could win. You've seen different permutations of this. And uh, one of the permutations of competition that really annoys a lot of people in both parties is that the parties currently have to compete on turnout. Uh, both of them realize that a lot lot of people who are not badly disposed toward their party's side of the debate stay home. And indeed, elections are lost all the time because one side falls down on the turnout dimension. The other side may not be doing better on turnout, but one side, for whatever reason, sees its turnout tank and loses. Now, that's the type of competition that many of them would just soon be without. Thank you very much. And, and, and heaven help you if you're the third party candidate whose vote totals beat the margin between the two major party candidates. That's for a different podcast on ranked choice <laughs> voting. But, but yes, so we have a variety of reasons, some of which are probably idealistic, others of which I think are kind of ignoble, why people who are all psychically invested in running for office, and particularly being elected to office, find that you're spoiling everything when you stay home and don't vote. I'm trying to get down to just the, the morality of this, is there a defensible moral case for compelling people to play a role in choosing the people who govern? Not to me, and I'm not sure I can convince everyone of my own moral precepts. So I'll turn to public opinion polls, which are much better than morality anyway, we know in uh, in winning arguments. Uh, this question has been polled about again and again, and uh, Overwhelmingly, Americans say they do not want voting to be compulsory. And to give them due credit, the Brookings Harvard group did their own new poll on this, figuring maybe they could get a different result. And as they freely admit, nope, they got the same old result. People can't stand the idea. And the number one reason, and here I kind of rub my hands of, you know, public's more libertarian than they, they are given credit for. The number one reason is that people have a right to not participate if they don't feel like it. People phrase it in terms of 
individual rights. And I think that's actually a very good way to start on it, which is if you conceive of participation in elections, participation in politics as an individual right, above all, then you should also see a corresponding individual right not to participate and not to vote. That also sends a message. That also is sometimes the only way for people to send certain types of message. And that's why I don't go along with the argument that you sometimes hear when you bring up this freedom of conscience thing, when you bring up this for forced speech or forced message sending concept, which is pretty clear, I think, to a lot of critics of it. But the proponents say, no, they don't really have to send a message because they could cast a blank ballot, for example, or they'll we'll give them a none of the above option. Well, of course, I'm all in favor of a none of the above option, but it isn't the same as being able to send the message of, I didn't vote. I stayed home. I compare it to the Pledge of Allegiance, standing for the flag and, and putting your hand over your heart. Most people don't have an objection to doing it. Some people do. Those people should not be forced. Yeah. So uh, if none of the above was such a great option, how many states do that? Nevada is famous for doing it. Uh, are there any others? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I can't, I, we don't here in my home state. Uh, I have shown up to the polls ready to vote and discovered that there was no one on the ballot that I wanted to support. And of course, the none of the above option, even in Nevada, and I do give them credit for offering it as an expressive choice, but I don't think that it is a choice with practical consequences in that I don't think the that a new election is held if none of the above happens to win. And I, I could be wrong, but my memory is its practical effect is the same as casting a blank ballot. And, and you think about candidates and people pushing a ballot proposition or, or you know, spokespeople for candidates, they have to inspire voters. They have to go out and make a pitch that the things I am talking about are important and the policies that I want to uh, want to have adopted are would be extremely valuable and beneficial to you. That that doesn't seem as important in a world in which you are compelled to go to the polls. Exactly. It means that the marginal adherents or the ones who are not probably support you but are but have their doubts or or just are very unenthusiastic, you've got a good chance of getting them anyway, even if you don't listen to them, even if you don't explain your case to them. And the you know, the the null hypothesis is still probably best. If you ask, you know, has Australia gotten some sort of wonderful benefit out of this? The various other countries that have tried it, right? I find this interesting. Uh, historically, a lot of countries have tried this and either have repealed it, which is true of a number of European countries, or have left it completely unenforced because there is absolutely no legal consequence to so people ignore it. Now, if it were such a wonderful democratic elixir or or you know, perhaps the better metaphor is, uh, you know, lubricant in the gears of democracy. Why is it that countries that try it so often drop it? I, I think historically, one of the things that you find is that it is used sometimes for nationalist reasons in sometimes by countries that have um, had questions in their past about whether or not their population could outvote some other population as part of a larger colonial system or something. And they want to somehow make a show like the peacock with its feathers of, you know, we have national unity, you know, look, we're all in this business for some audience that might not be the voters themselves. And again, it's nice that America is not in such a position that it has to make any such show of numbers. I hope that we never fall into such a situation. 
Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.